Welcome into the Autzen Audibles podcast. Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on today's Monday show. Uh, the Ducks fresh off a victory over USC, turning the page to Arizona State. But uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, kind of college. We, the coaching carousel has started. Texas A&M fired Jimbo Fisher. Uh, Will Arnett at Michigan at Mississippi State, not Michigan State. Excuse me. He has been fired as well as of Monday morning. Um, Zach Arnett, are, right? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> you said Will, like the uh, like the actor. I love Arrested <laughs> Development. Love, love Will Arnett, great actor, but uh, <laughs> he's not fired. We'll be, no, no, no. Well, I hope not. At least <laughs> need him on those. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming like this is gonna kind of dominate the week, as stupid as it is gonna be. Um, it is what it is, but there's a lot to get to with this one. Um, I think we have a wide range of questions on the mailbag. We really do. And we are just going to start right where Matt was talking with a question from at Drew Goley, who asks, how concerned should Oregon fans be about Dan Lanning ending up at Texas A&M? Hashtag Outsonables. Figured we'd just start there, address it. Um, to Matt's point, this could be something that we're talking about for a while, or it's we're recording this Monday morning. Dan speaks later today, 6.45 p.m. He might come out and address it right away. I'm sure he will be asked about some of this stuff. I don't know if I really buy into the veracity of these rumors or the sources of some of this, these, these names that are pushing him the most aggressively, at least right now. Um, I'm also not naive enough to think that like an Oregon coach wouldn't leave for another job because we've been through this a couple of times. I just don't think this one makes the most sense but i also remember being in las vegas with matt a day before the pac championship in 2021 feeling kind of like oh yeah mario's not going anywhere and then <laughs> shortly after that game it became very clear he wasn't so um i'm you know i'll, I'll let you guys answer this as well but I, I think we're probably all kind of on similar footing where it, dan has said so many things so definitively about wanting to be here raising a family he says all the right things um this feels different but I guess I've also never asked him specifically, like, hey, what's your thought on the Texas A&M Aggies? Do you like that job? So I, I would be naive to just suggest there's no chance this happens, but it really, to me, doesn't make a lot of sense for several reasons, which we can get into if we want. Yeah, I it's, part of me feels like we're a broken record. I feel like we've said this about Mario, and we've said it about Willie Taggart, and we said this last year with Dan and the Auburn rumors, although I didn't really think that those were legitimate rumors. Um, where it's like he says the right thing. Obviously, he doesn't like, you know, I feel confident that he won't leave. And then the coach is gone in 72 hours or something like that. Um, I don't expect that to happen. Uh, here I am being the broken record. Um, I agree with Eric. I don't think it's I don't see the obvious perks of joining the Texas A&M team or program or university if you're Dan Lanning other than the dollar sign amount. And that's OK. Um, I think everybody who is listening to this podcast or on this podcast would take a job that pays them two to three to four times as much as what they make at their current job and it gives them all the control in the world. Um, for, for Dan and this theoretical Texas A&M position, uh, I would imagine they offer a contract even bigger than what Jimbo's was um, because money is literally no object to Texas A&M and they have as deep a pockets as anybody in the country. Um, I don't think that Dan would leave. I agree to the point where he's settling in his family. He's talked about that a couple times where he doesn't want to move his kids. They've already moved so much during their life. And now they're here at Oregon. They feel rooted to the community and all the, all the good things you want to hear that I do actually tend to believe him on. 
Um, it's just going to be a more legitimate rumor than what Auburn was last season. I know Dan last year commented on the Auburn rumor and shut it all down. Um, Oregon did the good job this offseason of extending Dan and making his buyout bigger. Um, I know that the buyout is a, is a lot to some schools. It's not a lot to Texas A&M if they were to really go after Dan. Um, and if I'm Dan, I'm just trying to leverage this into a bigger contract with Oregon because I think he can do that pretty easily if they come with actual numbers. Um, but I, I look at it as a legitimate rumor uh, just because of Texas A&M's firepower compared to Auburn last season. But I don't expect Dan to be going anywhere. Um, I went back and pulled the quote that he provided in the press release when he was extended back in July. And the very first thing he talks about is the, the long-term commitment to being not only the coach at Oregon, but being a community member of the Eugene area. In uh, coaching, your dream to be at a place where you can both raise your family and win at a high level Oregon has more than exceeded those expectations for my wife, Sophia, and our three boys. And this will ensure our boys can all graduate from the same school as we continue to grow roots in the community. Um, he has made it very clear, like Jared said, multiple times that they have moved a ton in the last seven to ten years of his coaching career. And that he has been looking for a place to settle down Um and start their family essentially you know in, in a community in one place and that was I, it it's i i'm like you i you have to be aware that oregon's been burned twice in a row by coaches saying that they're committed to oregon and then they leave but i also think that this one feels different um landing has made a commitment to not only like putting himself into the public eye, but like doing things in the community outside of the public eye and being committed to his kids growing here and, and growing up here and the family spreading their roots. And th those are things I, I, I don't think we've saw you know, Mario Cristobal just out about in the community. If it wasn't some kind of Oregon football related thing, Willie Taggart wasn't here long enough to even try and do that. Um, maybe I'm b being naive, but like I have a, a zero fear that landing goes to this particular job, this one, like A&M hasn't won in ages. Um, it's a place where coaches go to die. Uh, I think they've fired their last four or five coaches. Um, they, they've had like one 10 win season in the last 20 years that their top five finishes aren't good. And to Jared's point, like, and it's okay if, if that's the case, but like you go and take this job because you ultimately just want to get paid boatloads of cash. And I, I, I just don't think while money is a factor for Dan, he's also made it very clear multiple times that there are things beyond just getting paid a lot of money that he's looking for and Oregon checks those boxes. So I, I, I don't fear this at all. Let me let me just. I got two things, and then we can move on. Um, because again, I don't want to. Do, I don't want to spend twenty minutes talking about something that sure. Dan might shoot down in nine hours, um, and just say that's not happening. Um, the other thing, first off, for for Texas A and M, 
like if Oregon actually makes the college football playoff, this is one of the first things I thought about. We know Dan's history pretty clearly with what he wants to do in terms of being loyal to the school he's at. And with, with Georgia, he hung around through the end of it. Do you really think he's going to take a job while playing for an, potentially playing for a national championship and be coaching? You know what I mean? Like, I don't see that being something he wants to do if, if that's still alive. And that means that Texas A&M's theoretically waiting until like mid-January, which I don't think they're willing to do. So the timeline thing kind of gets shady. And then the money part, I think like that ends up being kind of neutralized a little bit just because uh, Jared and I were talking about this last night and the comparison I drove is like, I don't doubt Texas A&M ha- has more money, but like Phil Light, Phil Knight to me kind of neutralizes some of that because like if you've got two really, really rich people and even if one has twice as much money as the other rich person, you're not using like 90% of your resources to hire this coach. Like unless they're resetting the market and making Dan paid like $20 million a year, which I just don't expect to be the case, then I don't see how money ends up being the factor because Phil Knight can match these massive overtures. Like if they're saying, you know, Dan's making, what is he making now? Is it like four and a half, five? I forget what the new number was. New number is seven. It's seven like six forty-five. Yeah, right. So if if so, that's even more. So like what's the number right. that AM has to hit where Oregon doesn't match? Is it 15, 16 million? Like does it get to that point? I don't I don't know. I'm just I, we're talking about a couple of rich and this is to Jared's point where like maybe Dan just ends up cleaning up here and you got two really, really rich donor bases competing over you where yep. neither wants to mm-hmm. either wants to say, I'm not continuing the bid. Cause I, I mean, Phil Knight has to have a pretty clear idea of what Dan provides the program. Like Dan has some leverage here if he wants to get paid huge. Um, and the question comes that comes down to where does he think he can be most successful trying to win a national championship with his actual aim. And to Matt's point, like, Recent history would suggest it's Oregon. So um, this is something I'm sure we'll talk about a lot, maybe, or we won't be talking yeah. about it at all. So who knows? This might be something that's this one podcast segment to start the show, or this might be something that's on our, our lips a lot over the next couple of weeks. I hope it's not the latter, just because coaching searches, from our perspective, um, might get a lot of page views, but they're not a whole lot of fun to cover. It's just nonstop, kind of wears you down. So we'll see what happens. Um, any other thoughts on I, this? Uh, yeah, I just brought up the money thing because – like like Jimbo's buyout is 77 or 78 million dollars. They got to pay him 19.2 million dollars in the next 60 days and then 7.2 million dollars every single year until 2031 to not coach. Most schools would be deterred by that and probably not go out and spend a lot of money on a, on a new head coach. Um, and I'm not saying A&M is going to go spend a lot of money on Dan, um, but I but I feel fairly confident in saying that they are going to spend a lot of money on whoever the new coach is. So I just wanted to bring that up because um, it's just like a different, it's a different world of money for A&M compared to like, uh, like Oregon will usually have the advantage over most back 12 schools because of Phil Knight and because of their donors. But um, Texas A&M money will be, it'll be what exactly what Eric is. It'll be like a net neutralizer. Like there's no amount of money that Phil Knight probably wouldn't pay to keep Dan in the same with what Texas A&M would offer Dan in this hypothetical scenario. Um, so I just that like, I just want to bring that up as like a kind of like a, a, like a neutral point of like, well, this is probably something different than what um, Oregon is used to in dealing with, because 
yeah, I would expect Phil Knight to go above and beyond because that's what he, exactly what he did for Mario. He offered him 10 years and 85 million. He took 86, I think, at Miami. Like that's, you know, a million dollars at that point doesn't mean anything. Um, so yeah. like if A&M was going to offer him a big contract, I would almost all but guarantee that Oregon also offers him the same contract. It just depends who he says no to. Exactly. Oregon would lose a bidding war to A&M. They're, they're hmm. not, they're not going to win that. Yeah. And it's one of the few schools that that would happen. And if, if Dan is in the, I want as much money as I possibly could get mode or power to you. It's hard to say no to that. the place. Yeah. And that's just not, it's just not the vibe that we've gotten from him in the times that he's spoken um, in front of a podium or when we've been around him at other media events. And he's talked about just Eugene, like that's just not money is not, it doesn't feel like the end goal for him. Like the most amount of money, like he wants to get paid, no doubt, but it doesn't feel like that's the ultimate driver for him. I, I just would be curious to see how much a would actually, what, what the number is where Oregon does it match and how high does that go? I mean, I mean legitimately, because like Oregon has some pockets too. And obviously I'm not suggesting AM it doesn't have more, but I made this like comparison to like if two billionaires are, are, are bidding over a yacht, like they're not actually bidding their net worth. So whoever has the most doesn't necessarily win. It's just who's willing to say no faster or, or you know what i mean and to me like i don't think phil wants to say no so i would just be surprised if they get outbid but that might mean he becomes extremely wealthy if this actually gets very far so um who, do we who knows? think like do we think dan does get a raise out of this like because i would try if i'm him i mean his agent definitely wants to <laughs> yeah right. i would agree but, yeah. I, mean, I guess i'm asking that from an organ perspective because they've already rewarded him handsomely and Technically still hasn't won a league championship yet. Still hasn't technically won a major bowl game yet. And he's he's one in or he's 0 and 3 against your biggest rivals this season and, or in his two years. And you can yeah. argue that those teams are good and that's true, but like still lost and he lost because of coaching errors by both both games against Washington. And they lost in embarrassing fashion against Oregon State. Not trying to say like he's a bad coach because I think he's going to be an elite coach, but he hasn't become that level yet from a from a results oriented business. And you know, like I, I don't know, I don't know what Oregon does and what Dan what uh, Dan Mullen, Rob Mullins does um, because they've already rewarded him handsomely already once this season, and it might be a case where. If they don't get to the Pac-12, if they don't get to the college football playoffs, and they and they go to the Fiesta Bowl and they win that, maybe it's just status quo. Um, but if they do get to the playoffs, maybe you bump it up a little bit. I don't know, but it's not. I, I at least I don't look at this as Dan is not like a top three coach in the country right now. No, and he shouldn't be paid like it either. Which is what A and M's money is going to be probably putting it at yeah right. which which is why it gets kind of weird but yep yeah i mean we'll we'll, we'll see i mean my, my, my point is i think you get you get like a couple of really rich billionaires who are kind of like arm wrestling over a guy and it just becomes who says no fast and first and if <laughs> and for dan that could be a very good thing it's just this is a good situation for his bankroll but to your point matt i don't know like what what is the number um 
because I don't I don't think Oregon's gonna have a choice. If yeah, Texas A&M I, I really agree. goes hard they after really Dan, Dan, they're not gonna have a choice, and they will have to put Dan into the nine to ten million dollars a year range, bare minimum. Because I mean, shoot, man, uh, A&M's gonna be paying more than Dan Manning makes a year to Jimbo just not to coach. So money again, no object to them. Um, but yeah, no, if they go hard after Dan and make him an offer he cannot refuse, it's probably somewhere like 12, 120. Because they gave 1095 to Jimbo, and that was three years ago. So got to adjust for inflation here a little bit and then uh, offer some sweeteners on top of it to say no to Oregon and uh, say no to them because that's going to be a hard thing to do. If, the, if, again, for those listening or watching, if they go all in on the Dan Landing assault. So we'll see. Should be fun. Should be a blast. Mm-hmm. Uh, the message board's going to be fun if this actually picks up. I, 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 Again, I don't think any of us are really super concerned right now, but we are very much aware of, of what's being said out there, and I think you should be too, but I wouldn't sweat it until... Fun to go through the exercise too. What's that? Talk Fun to go through the exercise as well. It is. Talk it all out. I agree. All right, uh, let's move on. Um, a question from AnimalMan623. Love the handle. Is field goal kicking a problem for the Ducks now? Yes. Hard to argue it's yeah. not. Um, <laughs> I, I Just say it again, Camden Lewis, great young man. Love talking with him, but we have to talk about performance, and the performance hasn't been good recently. Um, and it's kind of – it is, it is to me, a little surprising um, because I went back and I just was looking through his career, and obviously everybody remembers the start and the struggles he had his first – year and then you know he has the high moment of the game winner against washington state but he also has a bunch of misses and then the next year he actually loses his job to henry cattleman and everybody kind of writes him off expects him to transfer and then it's this great redemption arc where he goes i've got it written down here 33 of 38 over the last two and about a quarter seasons which um looking through the ncaa it's kind of hard to figure out everybody who's been kicking at that same time but i think he's one of the top three most accurate kickers over that span if you were to just try to like I did my best to boil it down, but I think he's, he's during that span, he was like very few guys were better. And then the last half of the season, the last six games, he's three of eight and the misses have been kind of woeful at times. And it's been consistently missing and it's been mixed in with kicking the ball out of bounds, which speaks to him probably not kicking the ball cleanly either. So, you know, it's five missed field goals. It's five kicks out of bounds in six weeks. That's really not acceptable to be just point blank. And I know, I don't think anybody on the staff would disagree with that just from that base metric of like, hey, if your kicker was doing this, would you say that's good? No. Um, The average kick, by the way, 44.4 yards. I did the math earlier. He's missed kicks of 38, 43, 47, 53, and 41. Kicks over 45, I can kind of like get behind, like that's probably pushing his range. Underneath that, missing 38, 43, 41, like this most recent one, like, those are kicks you should expect to make. And the problem here becomes how does that impact what hey, how does this impact Camden? Does he is he ever recover? Does he come back right. and, and start making these kicks? And B, does the staff still have confidence that he will? And that's the part where I start wondering, and they've done a good job to Dan's credit or to his detriment of continuing to trot him out there in these situations. Like they haven't backed away from it. He's kicked eight field goals in six weeks. Right. So like they're, they're not saying, Hey, we don't trust you. We're not going to kick field goals. We're going to go for it every time. And we know Dan likes to go for it on fourth, 
But I just wonder if you get to a point here, maybe we've already gotten pretty close to reaching it where you go, maybe we're just a go for it until we get within the 20 yard line team. Like we don't really trust Camden to kick anything further than 40 yards. And if you look through his career stats too, it kind of holds up like even the five misses he's had during that, that's two and a half or two and a quarter seasons where he was really successful. The misses he had were, were, were longer kicks. So um, yeah, I just thought I'd provide the data. You guys can build off of it. I'm, I think we're probably all pretty much in agreement though, that this is, this has reached a point that it's, I don't know if it's critical mass, but it's certainly very, very concerning. It's certainly concerning. Um, I remember weeks ago I brought up that I was more concerned about the kickoffs because I thought that was more detrimental to the team. Uh, I still somewhat feel that way just because I, I mean, I think Oregon's going to be aggressive regardless. Um, but you know, 38% of from field goals in the last six games is not ideal. And, you know, that'd be great if somebody shot 38% from three, but that's a failure sport, you know, especially from three point land. It's like baseball. It's a failure sport. Um, Field goal kicking should not be a failure sport. And Camden has proven in in years past to be really good at points. Um, It just hasn't been recently. And it's been, these have been bad misses too. I think that's the problem is that, you know, except for the Washington, the the last one where he missed the potential overtime kick, the, a lot of these hasn't, haven't really even been close to going in. And just off the foot, you're like, well, okay. And if you're listening at home, I'd like to ask you a question. When Camden trots on the field nowadays at 41 yards, what's your confidence level? Is it any different than what it was in the COVID season? Because I feel like that's kind of the state of the union right now of the confidence in Camden Lewis. And again, it's uh, sad that we have to have this, this discussion because Camden's a good kid and one of the funner, uh, you know, more fun players to talk to onto the team and just a good overall human being. And what is, I think his final season at the university of Oregon, it sucks, but it's a legitimate problem and they need to figure out if grant meters is ready to go because you cannot have kicks out of bounds you cannot have these field goals that aren't even close. And Grant Meters is one of the best kickers in the country coming into the season as a high school senior. And we've seen him sparingly. But if he is a legitimate option, I think we should see him during the games and see what he has. Because right now, Camden is not looking great. Uh, I mean, there's not much more for me to to say here because i'm in agreement like it's it's a concern um i i said a couple weeks ago when eric brought up the question um i think it was the UW game that i said moving forward he probably shouldn't kick anywhere inside of or outside of 40 yards 39 and in is probably his the level but now he's missed one inside of that um I, i think if it's a reasonable fourth down and distance situation you should be going for it unless it's basically a chip shot like he had at Texas Tech. Um, it, it sucks. Uh, he's a good dude. He's a good person. Uh, he's gone through a lot. He got himself back, and then he's got the yips now. And it's come at the most inopportune time. Yeah, just last thought on it, the, the kind of the, the weird part of this is he's, I believe, now five points from becoming the school's all-time point scoring leader surpassing Royce Freeman and 
it it feels weird because now we're talking about whether or not he should have his job when he's in that spot. So I I, I don't think I mean I Dan and their staff is um I doubt worried too much about whether or not they want to bench the guy who's gonna break like the school record soon. I think they'll just do whatever is best. Like as he said, they're not you know, they're 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 a process driven. And if the process is Camden's not our best kicker, they'll go a different route. But it is an interesting dynamic too when you kind of include that where he's He's, he's probably a couple made kicks this weekend against Arizona State. If he keeps his job, I think he will. We'll see. I mean, maybe we'll come out there on practice on Tuesday and they'll show us something different. I doubt it because we don't get to see much anyway. But um, that part I just want to throw into the end of the conversation of like he's actually really close to passing Royce Freeman to become the school's all-time points scoring leader, which is uh, and kind of a weird wrench to the whole conversation as well. All right, last one before we had a break here from – at Michael Sayer 87, what are your realistic expectations for our def defense against Arizona State when they face a similar offense every week in practice? Hashtag odds and audibles. Um, figured we do a little bit of talk about this game coming up since we're all so fired up about it, right? Um, ASU, like, kind of sneaky, got a little win there last week against UCLA. I didn't really see that one coming. Did it in the Rose Bowl. I went and watched the highlights last night. Um, and I kind of I, that was part of why I wanted to include this question because I wanted to just do a little pre-scout. Do you guys watch some of the formations and weird stuff Arizona State's doing on offense? He pulled it's, everything yeah, out on YouTube, all the crazy plays. It is wild. They're wild formations. I mean, they had running backs, tight ends taking snaps as quarterbacks, and then actually throwing the ball. They had a running back throw like a seam route for a thirty-yard touchdown out of Scadaboo, right? Scadaboo, yeah, yeah, that's normal. They're, They've done that with Scadaboo. Yeah, Borge earlier. Borge was hurt too against UCLA, yeah. and they had the to game. put, huh? He played most of the game, but yeah, they he did, did correct. Yeah, but he got hurt towards the end, and they put Scadaboo like strictly as a Wildcat quarterback, but really like yeah. a quarterback Wildcat. It was very strange. Yeah, and then they played Jalen Conyers, which is their top tight end, also, and he threw a pass downfield that actually kind of sealed the game because it drew a pass interference call on a fourth down. Um, again, like a wildcat formation where they're actually the quarterback is not, you know, you expect them typically just to run it and they're actually throwing it and not just throwing mm -hmm. like a wide open pass, but like balls downfield. And then this was the one that was also interesting because, again, I, maybe maybe you guys have seen more ASU recently. I haven't watched them probably, um, honestly, since Pine was injured. Like this weird formation where they have the center and like two shield guys next to him. And then they have like five offensive linemen on one side with the receiver and like a couple offensive linemen on the other, like a completely unbalanced formation. I bring all this up to say it might be similar, like a base formation and a lot of base stuff to what Oregon does, but Arizona state's going to make you prepare for some really, really weird shit. <laughs> like just point blank. Yeah, like, 100%. They, they, like Kenny is extremely, getting very creative and I understand why like they're on quarterback three basically almost quarterback four depending upon the health of their quarterback I know he has an ankle injury um but they're just throwing the kitchen sink at people and trying to manufacture anything they can and it didn't it, there was enough to beat UCLA but UCLA was also down its top two quarterbacks and didn't play a very very good game at all so um but to the original question what are my expectations I I think Oregon's defense We'll do a, a pretty darn good job. Arizona State is last in the Pac-12 in scoring offense, um, averaging about 17 points per game. Oregon's defense is just about as good as UCLA, maybe better, and UCLA still hold them to 17 points with one of those touchdowns being, a, again, a, a running back throwing a seam route down the, yeah. you know, down the field. So 
Um, I, I feel realistic expectations. Um, Arizona State scores fewer than their season average, 14, 10 points maybe. Um, but Kenny's going to make you prepare for a lot of different stuff, and he's going to throw the kitchen sink at you. Yeah, and he, uh, like you said, he has to because he doesn't have any options. This is not um, – and Kenny Dillingham, we all had a lot of fun watching him at Oregon because he would throw out these wrinkles every once in a while, and it kind of it, it'd be fun But sometimes. Sometimes it wasn't so fun, but – you know, it, it, he now has control of his own program and he can do whatever the hell he wants down there. And it's honestly a lot of fun to go and watch that team because, boy, some of the stuff he comes up with is really strange, but also really cool. Um, there's going to be those moments against Arizona State on Saturday where they're going to the Sun Devils are going to run some trickeration and it's going to work. It's going to be, I don't know, a 15 to 30 yard game. And you're going to feel like the, 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 the house is caving in around you because it's kind of... Um, Kind of sad that like, oh, this trick play where Scadaboo is taking over a quarterback and throws a pass for 25 yards, like that should never happen. Oregon will be fine. I mean, this is a damn good defense. Um, they can play as conservative as they'd like, and that might not be a bad idea with all these trickerations and just trying to you know play sound defense and like a zone coverage idea more than man, just so you don't get lost. Um, maybe that's the their plan. Maybe it's not. Maybe they're just going to do what they normally do. Um, there's nobody on this asu team to be afraid of if you're oregon and, and after, especially after going against lincoln riley and caleb williams there's nobody on this team to be afraid of but uh cameron scadaboo future new england patriot easily 100 percent. my lord bill belichick's like probably his his long lost son um need him in new england you guys do need a quarterback yeah so i'm wrong first round pick uh, he's he's eleventh in the conference in uh, yards from scrimmage this season, so mm -hmm. he, he's a he's a good player, and he's got an extra year of eligibility if he wants to come back. Um, I'd be curious though if uh, he graduates, uh, does he use the third the second time transfer portal move? Uh, as for the question, zero fear. This is the worst offense in the conference. Um, I, I guess the fear is, is that you're playing a coach who is literally playing with house money uh, and Kenny Dillingham. Um, they can't go to a bowl game. They're not bowl eligible, even if they were. Uh, they've dealt with a ton of injuries, and he's kind of entered the effort mode of, of the season and is, like, drawing up plays from all over the place doing funky things just because they can, uh, seeing if they work. And if they don't, who cares? Sorry, we, we have a whole bunch of injuries, and we're not bowl eligible anyway, so I'm trying to keep, you know, do whatever I can to make this team competitive. And I will say, like, it's impressive that he has gotten this team um, to play hard, even though they've gone through stretches where they've lost a lot of games really close. Um, they have been competitive. And they knew from the jump they weren't ever going to a bowl game. And that's that's pretty impressive for Kenny Dillingham. So, like, I'm not – Oregon should dominate this game. They should win by a lot. Uh, it should be very similar to what the California end result was um, a couple weeks ago. And it, it should be a game in which you would hope that you could rest some players either the entire game because of injury, like – Bucky Irving or um, 
maybe your corners who got hurt last week in, against USC. Mm-hmm. Or maybe the more likely scenario is those guys play, but they play limited snaps and their day is done as quickly as the game is over, whether that be at halftime or the start of the fourth quarter. Um, it would be a it would be a bad day for Oregon if the guys that are dealing with some kind of injury are having to play until the clock hits zero on Saturday. Yeah, I, I agree. Not much else to say. And you hope you can get those guys healthy in part because Oregon State the following week, that game could mean a lot. Or Pretty important. Be, yeah. You know, so we'll see. I was going to say how frisky ASU has been in the Pac-12. Like yeah. other than the loss to Utah, um, I think their biggest margin of defeat was 14. And that was to USC in week four. I mean, you know, lost to Cal by three, lost to Colorado by three, lost to Washington by eight, Washington State nine. Obviously, they beat UCLA and Washington State. Um, they're, they're a frisky team. They're, they're not going to be fun to play if you're Oregon. Um, but I don't, you know, good teams in the Pac-12 win in the desert in November. And, uh, and Oregon is a good Pac-12 team this year. So I would expect them to not, I mean, I don't think they're going to roll them like Utah did. Because that was just ridiculous, but I expect a pretty hand of, handful win here. And to put context on the Utah game too, that they were Arizona State's Borgay got knocked out. They brought in, I think it's Conover, who I'm not overly familiar with his work, but I know his box score line was like five for twenty-two for forty I mean, they yards. Gained, they gained like less than a hundred yards in the day. Yeah, that was one where Kenny probably didn't really have any alternatives to kind of pull out of the bag there. Now you've got a quarterback who, again, if he's five for 22 for 40 yards and a pick, he's probably not someone you can really game plan around, especially on the fly. So they have, they have four quarterbacks who have attempted 38 or more passes this season. Like it's, it's, been it's a just, that's not it's good. just been a revolving door for them because Injury. guys get hurt and, or guys haven't been productive. And that doesn't account for Scadaboo having eight attempts already this season. And then now, as Jared or Eric said earlier, like Conyers, the tight end, has has moved over to playing some version of a quarterback for them at times. Um, and they only have seven touchdown passes all year. Yeah, yeah. they have as many passers as as touchdown passes almost. Like that's that's the word. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll finish up the mailbag. All right, welcome back to the Austin Audible's mailbag. Uh, a couple questions left to go, centered around who knows what, because I forgot what the questions were. Matt, come on, you got to keep up. <laughs> We're in our Slack channel. Uh, all right, fourth run from at GoDucks85. This might be kind of quick. Um, I mean, I know we need to take this one game at a time and not look too far ahead, but for the sake of being straightforward, with no tiebreakers – and this is are some scenarios he throws out for this weekend. If Oregon beats ASU, Washington beats Oregon State, and Utah beats Arizona, won't Oregon clinch a spot in the Pac-12 title against Washington? Hashtag Ottsnotables. Uh, I just wanted to start the week by pointing this out. I don't even know if we need to do much discussion, but that is exactly accurate. If that were to be the case, Washington would have no losses, Oregon would have one loss, and everybody else would have at least three losses going into the final weekend. So there would never be a tiebreaker because even if Oregon lost to Oregon State, um, 
they would still have fewer losses than the Beavers. So um, those things happen. Book your t- book your ticket. Book those flights to uh, to Vegas. Get those tickets purchased. Get ready. I think I already know some people in my life that have already taken those steps. Hopefully they're not uh, too early on that. But um, yeah, I, I think that's how it plays out. Oregon beats ASU. Washington beats Oregon State. Utah beats Arizona. And by the way, that would be quite a parlay there if you were going to try to make a bet. Because uh, I could think those are probably pretty decent odds that all those happen. The least likely probably being the. Uh, uh, well, actually, Arizona is pretty frisky, and that's a home game. So I don't Arizona's know. Maybe, pretty maybe. good. Yeah, yeah, Arizona could strange to be the the weird team that I don't even know what a tiebreaker with Oregon versus Arizona would be. I imagine Oregon would would win that, but I don't know because now I'm going best win would be both would have wins over Utah. Anyway, uh, if this scenario takes place, Oregon's fine, and if Oregon wins out, Oregon's fine. It's They're just, also fine, the yeah. actual answer. Yeah. So if Oregon wins all its games, it, this doesn't even matter, but. They could clinch it this weekend if a couple of things break, right? There you have it. That's it. I got nothing. On got we nothing. go. I got yeah. nothing. I mean, it's just we're just talking about uh, tiebreakers here. Um, yeah. Eric I'm, laid it out. These I was are, hoping you were going to talk for a second because I'm on the Pac-12 site trying to find the uh, well. I can I can fill the tiebreaker rules because I I know there are tiebreaker rules somewhere on the site. I just can't. Yeah, I have no idea what those are. Um, all sure. I know is that if you score more points than the other team, you will win and move on. So, yes. Uh, as far as tiebreakers go, for me, that's that's all I know. I thought it was head to head was one, and then number two was win over the best team. Top team, they would be right. Owen. Right. But so I guess yeah, that would be yeah. wins over Oregon State. Yeah, yeah. If so Oregon I guess were to win get, against Oregon State, yeah, Arizona would. Monkey have the tiebreaker then because it would get to Oregon state and Oregon would have lost to OSU. And yeah, that'd be Arizona fun to beat them. They sure did. So root for the Utes and root for the Huskies this weekend. If you're an Oregon fan, I know it pains people to say that for the second part, but uh, that's over Oregon state. And I don't think Oregon fans like that team very much either. So it's probably not too difficult. You still want a time looking to look that up, Matt, or are we good? No. If if we if you oh, want wait, to, wait, 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 found it. He's got it. Here we go. Uh, two team tie. If two teams are tied for first place, uh, they'll compete in the championship. Obviously, if there's not a tie for first place, but the two teams are tied for second place, the two team tiebreaker policy will apply, and the winner will be the two seed in visiting. That doesn't make any sense. Um. To a Winning percentage against the next highest placed common opponent in the standings based on record in all games. Um, you just go down. Win percentage against all common conference opponents is the third one. Um, combined win percentage in conference games of conference opponents, strength of schedule is the fourth one. The fifth one is total number of wins in a 12-game season. Um and it that ultimately would get up. down to a coin toss if they were still somehow still tied, but that wouldn't happen. Wow. A it coin toss. That, How electric that would far. that be? Arizona's lost a non-conference game, so Oregon does have the overall yeah. win record. Well, I, there. But who cares? How electric would that be, though? If it came to – it, it would be so packed 12 if it ended that way, and then they did a full – they should do a full hour-long show, and then it just comes <laughs> down to a coin toss. <laughs> Bring in like a scientist of – Explaining a coin, how it's not 
Yeah, it would it would stop at two because if it's Oregon and Arizona and Oregon loses to OSU and Arizona beats Utah and then beats ASU, um, Oregon would lose out because Arizona beat OSU and Oregon would have lost. What happens if Good Washington times. loses to Oregon State and Washington State? <laughs> Ooh, well, now you're getting crazy, and I don't want to spend keep, the time keep trying dreaming. to figure all that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We spent probably more time on that than I thought we would, but hey, it's fun. And uh, I really hope at some point we can have a conference championship game determined by a coin toss. I hope Oregon's not one of the teams involved because that would be agonizing. Could you we'll imagine? see if the Big Ten does that. Maybe there's a little bit of a smarter conference and they have yeah, some I, more analytical data. All right. We'll find Last out. One from at Robbie Parnas, one of our favorite question askers. Down the stretch of the season, there are positions having their depth tested. He included cornerback and running back. If guys continue to be banged up, who are some players that we will need to who will need to step up? Um, which positions do you think can afford an injury the least? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. And he also said other than quarterback on the injury front, which is the obvious answer. Because if Bo Nix goes down, we all know this changes dramatically. And maybe Ty Thompson's ready, maybe he's not. We'll, we would hopefully – I'm knocking on what hopefully that's not a, uh, a bridge you have to reach at any point soon. Um, I wanted to include this because I, I do think there's legitimate questions right now at corner with health because Oregon finished this game with, I don't know if we didn't really mention it on the podcast, we probably should have, but Roderick Pleasant stopped that game from being a one score game by making a tackle on a two point conversion on Brandon Rice, where if he doesn't make that tackle, that's an eight point game. And I, I'm not saying it, that result changes at all, but it could have theoretically been a little bit more stressful at the end. Um, but the fact that he was on the field just spoke to the injuries that corner right now, where you've had Kyrie and Jaleel. I don't think either played any in the second half. Um, you had Dante kind of, I think, out for parts of the fourth quarter, too. Um, those are three of your top five cornerbacks. And so they finished the game with like Triquez and Nico and Roderick Pleasant. So um, those would be the three names to know that would need to step up if theoretically the other three are out. I have no expectation or under, like, or, or really like I couldn't even answer with the clear sense of like who is actually how serious these injuries are. Cause Dan didn't give us any information after the game. Um, but I will say it's, it, it, it is not ideal that Kyrie and Jaleel have both had kind of, I don't want to say nagging injuries cause these might be different injuries than what they've dealt with before, but we've been through this before. And mm-hmm. this is one of the positives at corner, at least, is I'm not going to sit here and say that Oregon has depth that is on par with their starters. But Triquas Bridges was a full-time starter last year, and I still would contend a pretty decent corner. Like, that's not an awful option if you have to go there. Dante Manning, assuming he's healthy, was a former five-star recruit. Roger Pleasant, very highly rated recruit. Nico Reed, last year at Colorado, was an honorable mention all conference selection, I believe. So like you've got some pretty darn good players. And Nico Reed plays a ton in their base formation. He's just playing in the slot primarily. He's not usually on the outside. So like, I think they're actually better at corner, especially against Arizona state and Oregon state. If these are like short term ish injuries, neither of those offenses really scare you a ton on the outside. Obviously you'd like to have your top guys. Um, but if, these are long-term injuries, which, again, I don't have any sense of if they are or not. 
that gets kind of worrisome against Washington because you saw at the very end of that game what happened when this yeah. exact situation played out where both of those players, both both being Kyrie and, and, and Julio, were out for extended periods of time. So, um, And then I guess running back depth, um, Bucky did leave that game with it looked like an ankle injury, came back, obviously scored the touchdown, looked good. But if he's limited, you're, you're now looking at um, a couple of true freshmen, Jaden Lamar and Dante Dowdell, both guys – have played a little bit this season. I think both guys are, are, are high upside players down the road, but certainly that's a, a pretty massive step back to me um, from from what you've got right now. Uh, I think for me, there's two very obvious positions. Um, I, I agree with running back uh, more than cornerback just because of the depth that they built there. Um, running back, Bucky, obviously, is way better than any you know true freshman. But I do think, again, I'm a, I'm a running back hater. I do think that Oregon's offense would survive with the group of three running backs of James and Lamar and Dowdell. But the obvious positions to me are safety and tight end. I think you have Steve Stevens and Evan Williams right now, Tysheem Johnson as well. And then uh, if one of those deep safeties gets hurt, specifically Steve Stevens, Brian Addison is no longer on the team. Uh, you can try to move Kamari Terrell back to safety, although he's been playing a lot of slot, a lot of corner uh, in this fall camp. And then in, during the season, he's also been injured. So that doesn't help. Um, suddenly, you're relying on Damon David, Cody DeCambra, and Tyler Turner. All three guys who have played very sparingly this season at safety, and especially a deep safety. Uh, maybe they move some guys around, and Tysheem Johnson, and then you know they all you know, co-inhibit all the safety positions, and they all move around, and they all have cross-training everywhere, but... Uh, right now, it's been the Steve Stevens show at this deep safety position and Evan Williams at box. So um, I think that's a position that obviously will need to be addressed in the offseason, considering they're losing maybe four players, four of their seven, and probably five if Damon hits the transfer portal again. Um, but that, if somebody goes down there, especially Steve, if he goes down, I have a lot of question marks of who is going to fill in there. Uh, and then tight end. Here I am, banging the drum. I'm here. Tight end is a problem. Uh, Kenyon Sadiq is the lone backup, and he you know doesn't play too often. But uh, if Terrence Ferguson or Patrick Herbert or Casey Kelly go down, or God forbid, two of them, ooh-wee, there's not a lot of depth back there. Um, I, I feel like even though I, I like Lamar and Dowdell, if Jordan James or Birch goes down that's for extended time, that's bad. So I would um, – did I say Birch? I meant – You did, yeah. Yeah. I, I meant Jordan James and Bucky Irving. Um, so I would say that would be a concern. Um, I think if Tez or Troy Franklin go down, that's that – That's another one, yeah. That is a massive blow to, to Oregon's offense um, because as we have seen the last few weeks, it's becoming harder and harder for Troy to get the football. Um, he's still really damn good at getting it, but it's becoming harder, which has opened the door for Tez. And if they lose one of those two guys, it just eliminate. I think if it lo- if they lose Troy, it, it's a huge loss. I think they can kind of scheme their way around if they lose Tez, um, but it becomes significantly harder. Um, I I think defensive line, it they're fine. Like it would suck if if Dorless went down with an injury. It would be a horrible bit of news. It, it would be you'd feel terrible for the kid. But they've got the depth. They've got the talent. That they'll be fine. Um, 
That's, I'm not trying to say he's not a good player because he's probably their best defensive player. But they have so many guys there. They've, they've rotated so many guys. Mm-hmm. Um, they are capable of withstanding that kind of an injury. Um, I think if Jeffrey Bossa goes down with an injury, that linebacker room becomes scary. Um, I know there's a lot of confidence in Justin Jacobs. I know um, Jamal Hill has has played well um, this season, but I think Bossa's leadership and getting everybody in position um, is invaluable. You can't put a value on it. He's critical. Um, and then Jared's point, the safeties positions, it's it's very thin all of a sudden. Felt like they had a lot of options, and now they don't. Um, strangely enough, like we've seen Oregon's corners go down before with injuries, and guys have just stepped right up and have, have filled in the gaps. Um, it would be different if they went into to this weekend's game or maybe a couple weeks against Washington and Vegas where they don't have – Florence, uh, Jackson, and Manning to start the game, that would make it a lot more scary going in. Um, But at least right now, like if if they played ASU and they didn't have those three guys, like it would be a concern, but it wouldn't be my number one. Like Manning has performed well when asked, or excuse me, Bridges has performed well when asked. We've seen Roger Pleasant. Nico Clem has played a lot in times and has, has done well. Um, they would be able to withstand another one, but yeah, not Nico Clum, Nico Reed. I'm all over the place this morning. You're a name. Not sleep. Sorry, no. It's been it's been a long weekend, and Matt was coaching a championship uh, flag football game on Sunday, so he was he's out there. Yeah. Uh, one one couple, just a couple spots that that we didn't mention that actually I think should be pretty high on this list, and and one because we saw it for a for a, a glimpse on Saturday where it looked like it might come to fruition is if Jackson Powers Johnson goes down, you're looking at a true freshman in Iapani Lalalu who everybody loves. I mean, he's playing a ton of snaps every game. He's basically played 20, 30 snaps every game the whole season. So he's got a lot of fill, but or a lot of run, I should say, but um, that, that would be, that could be potentially tough. And Jackson's played at such a high level. I do think there'd be a, a decent drop off down to, um, to Poncho, who again I think is going to be like a really high end player, and I'm a sneak peek. I'm going to have a feature story on he and his brother Feope coming up here in a couple of weeks, and and, and their progress and, and and everything. And um, but that's one. And then sticking on the offensive line, Oregon's rotated a lot in the inside, and that hasn't even included Nishad Struther or Junior Angulao. I think you feel pretty decent about guard, but we don't really have a great sense of the tackles behind like Feope. Everybody loves, they say he's a great team player. I know he's been out there in, in some of these jumbo packages and has done well, but we haven't actually seen him in a game go up against real competition and, and, and have to face that. And then George Silva and, and Kavika Rogers are like the other two kind of names and the same answer with those two. Like we've seen even less of them. So I, I think the offensive line feels deep because you've got a bunch of veteran guards who aren't playing but I do think at center and then at specific, especially at tackle there's just not proof bodies we've really really seen play a lot there so I would just include those but I I actually I think I'd agree with with where Jared started that at safety is probably the spot I'm I'm uh, uh w- that would probably be potentially the worst place to lose to lose somebody right now what position did we miss I feel like we hit them all 
Long snapper, kicker, punter, what do we miss? Uh, well, how about a holder or a long snapper actually could get tough. I mean, Camden's having a hard enough time anyway. So yeah. that snap's uh, not coming Luke, in. Uh, what is it? Luke Dezanski. He's the backup long snapper just for everybody. From Luke to um, Luke. Luke to Luke, yeah. Uh, punter, got two of them. It's probably the Luke. deepest position on the team, honestly. Um, that was such a flex by Dan. Ah, oh, we just like Dunn's ability to punt it higher. Like, he should. He punts it higher. Uh, I, I mean, I, I agree, but it's like we, uh, we got, we've got Ross is so good, but we just didn't need him because we like the, the punter we got today. Two that, punters. That can kick it higher instead of further. Like, yeah. I, it's probably the deepest position on the team. I, I don't know what else <laughs> there could be. Like, Defensive line? I don't think so. Man. Defensive line probably is technically deeper than. No, no, no. You have, you have like the best, one of the better kickers in the country in Ross James, at least statistically speaking. And then you got Luke Dunn, who's the uh, the highest kicking of all the guys. The, he's know. the hang the hang time king. Hang time uh, king. Uh, yeah, I think we hit all the positions. So I think everybody have. is every everyone is one to worry about. Just to let you know, Oregon fans. And it's not, I mean, it's not really that case, but there, but I, I do think there are spots where, yeah, you, it would be a much steeper decline than others. And mm-hmm. clearly we've outlined every single position. I don't even know if we really gave an answer aside from telling you that every single answer would have concern. Pick one position. Let's all just pick one position. I'd say center, honestly, just because I, I just would be, it would be stressful to have a true freshman touching the football every single down and you get into some of these big games like that, that would be a little scary to me. Safety. Safety. Yeah, I'm on safety. All right. That's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Thank you for submitting your questions. Uh, We'll be back on Tuesday with a recap of what Dan said Monday night, plus player recap. Uh, Wednesday, Chris Cartman from uh, Sun Devil Source will be on the show as well. And then Thursday, we'll make our predictions. But until then, you've been listening to the Austin Audible's podcast. Talk to you there, folks. Peace.